Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We are in a study of the four Gospels presentation of the coming of Christ and what this has to do with their particular interest in presenting Jesus to us throughout the rest of the book. As you know just from literature, the introduction of a character is very important for understanding who this person is and what role he or she is going to fulfill in the story. Well, the, the big story, of course, is, uh, is the same and everywhere presented by prophets, apostles, and, and uh, other uh, writers for us. And, and yet, each of the writers has a particular interest and introduces Jesus, therefore, in a particular way. Let's read from Luke chapter 2, this introduction, well known to us, I hope, from Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went out to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up to Galilee, sorry, from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judah, excuse me, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in that same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood above, up before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came and made haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Amen. And we pray, our Father, that the same joy of those shepherds would be ours as we rediscover and revisit today the babe in the manger who is Christ the Lord, in whom we pray. Amen. Well, the angel called for joy, for great joy, for God was sending joy as full and as rich and wonderful as God himself. And so it is no wonder that the Bible presents this joy from so many different facets that we have these four Gospels, four extended accounts of the life and teaching, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And 
We don't have just four mere repetitions of the same material. Some overlap, to be sure, but each of the four authors has his own emphasis and purpose and audience in mind. Each one presents his own portrait of Jesus that we might be able to see him from various perspectives and admire him in different ways. One teaches us, each one teaches us many things about Jesus that we would not know otherwise. For example, if we didn't have the Gospel of Luke, we would never have known about a manger or a babe lying in it or angels appearing to shepherds abiding in the fields. This is completely uh, Luke's contribution to the coming of Christ. But what is the significance of these things? Why does Luke select these events as opposed to others? And how does he introduce to us his portrait of the Messiah in this picture? That's our question for today. Well, humanly speaking, there's really nothing to be uh, admired about this story. It's really rather sad. There was a Roman census. Joseph and Mary of the lineage of David had to go register at their hometown of Bethlehem in the city of David, a very small farming village. Probably didn't even have an inn, by the way, although that's the word used in my translation. But the word that Luke uses in his original is somewhat more general, and linguists have pointed out it could really it could refer to any accommodation that was available, extra room in the house or Airbnb or, or uh, whatever, okay? There was not even an Airbnb is the point. There was nothing in Bethlehem uh, with the census being uh, taken. Uh, uh, it was more than full, and people were having to do what they had to do. There was an animal stall free, and that was the place where in the hay they lodged for the night, and so God incarnate the Savior of the world, was brought forth in a barn and laid in a feed box. Humanly speaking, I say it's quite a sad story, but all this taking place under the sovereign will of God to teach us about our Savior Jesus, and Luke in particular, would have us know these facts in order that he would introduce to us the right Jesus, that we would understand who it is that is our Savior. And so I'd like to point out a couple things about why this is so important and why this story introduces to us the Savior that Luke continues to unveil throughout the book. First, it's a way of telling us right from the beginning that Jesus had come for people like us. Jesus had come for people like us. The birth of Christ the King was not announced to rulers in their palaces, but to shepherds in their fields. It's very significant. Those shepherds were sent to find a babe, not wrapped in purple and laid in a golden cradle, but to find their king lying in something that those shepherds would find very, very homely and comforting and very familiar, an animal's manger. Here was a ruler and a savior who had come for people like them. This was no king like Caesar. He was not going to be trampling down in the fields, uh, people in their armies with slaughters of, of their flocks to feed his nobles. No, here was the poor man's friend. His chosen ambassadors would soon be lowly fishermen and a despised tax collector. Um, you know that for many people, politics and religion are all tied up with uh, each other and power and wealth and status. Jesus had come to overturn all that, for such things were worthless in God's sight. Just a few paragraphs before we started reading, 
chapter 1, verse 52, it was prophesied that Jesus would put down the lowly from their thrones and, sorry, put down the mighty from their thrones and exalt the lowly, fill the hungry with good things and send the rich away empty. Or this right after in chapter 2, that he would be destined, Jesus would be destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. A fall for the rich, the mighty, the religious leaders, not very many of them at all, would become his followers. Indeed, to them, not even a birth announcement was sent. Um, They were too good in any case to come visit their new king in an animal stall. They would not be rejoicing to receive such an invitation to go and find a manger. But Jesus had not come principally for them. He had come for the poor, for the lowly, for the needy, and the outcast, for for even the harlot and the tax collector and the sinner. None were too humble or too low for Jesus. And we are reminded that that was true right from the very beginning. The self-righteous were far too proud. They didn't think that they needed him, but the lowly found him and received him gladly. And so God wanted to be sure from the beginning that his people were the first to know this good news. And so these poor shepherds who were having to sleep out with their flocks in the field, these are his people, and there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the sign that you'll find him lying in a manger. Mary uh, had earlier spoken of God regarding her in her lowly estate. She used that word twice. She speaks of the utter reversal of the world's order, putting down the mighty, exalting the lowly. And we have introduced to Jesus, therefore, right at the beginning, from from his coming onto the scene, that he is overturning all human value, all expectation. The world system will be turned upside down. The things that the people revere and praise will be of no account in his kingdom, and the poor he will know by name. He had come for them. And so begins the kingdom of Christ without any human power or might. Jesus arrives unknown, unperceived, with no worldly advantages. His kingdom will not be established by any earthly power. His uh, uh, attack will involve no armies, no field of battle, but rather words of joy. The great conquerors of his kingdom would be these fishermen, as I mentioned, and uh, Jesus will tell Galilean peasants, I am bestowing upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me. So you see what a fitting introduction this is. Uh, Luke is particularly interested in the needy, the poor, the lowly, the, uh, the marginalized in society. Comes up again and again and again. Uh, he has more to say about the poor, more uh, uh, parables about the poor. We know the name of 12 women that we would not have known otherwise because uh, he is very, very uh, anxious to show that Jesus was interested in the marginalized, in the disenfranchised, in the disaffected, in the, uh, in the poor and needy of society. Caesar Augustus and Quirinius are mentioned here at the head of our passage. Of course, very powerful, influential men. And uh, no announcement was made to them. It was made in a roundabout way to Herod, I suppose, but we know how badly that ended. And uh, God's announcement does come to the shepherds at night with their flocks, the very kind of people that we will find throughout this book 
the very kinds of people that are eager to receive this Savior and receive good tidings of great joy. Luke shows us how uh, there is uh, an interest in Jesus, and as I say, the, the poor, the sinful outcasts, the children, the women, many, many references here, not that there's any virtue in poverty, but because of greater need, because of casting off by society, their general helplessness and misery, mistreatment, the Messiah has come to show his sympathy, his care, his interest in the least of these. The Messiah is bringing a new order of society in general, where, to put it mildly, riches are not esteemed and poverty is not despised. The the book throughout, the Gospel of Luke, overturns any snobby or superficial society and reveals God's special love to people with special need. Um, I will uh, point out that uh, this book is a full-orbed presentation of our Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior who has uh, pity on the weak, who delivers the needy, as Psalm 72 puts it. We find him uh, in his first sermon in his home synagogue, reading the text from Isaiah where God has anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor. Um, The poor and needy were those whom he repeatedly healed. So would be the widow of Nain who had lost her only son. The sinful woman who needed his forgiveness for her sins were so great that she wept on Jesus' feet. And again and again, all these people whom we would not know except that Luke takes a very special interest in such people. One scholar points out salvation must be understood in the most all-encompassing way possible, empowering the disadvantaged, seeking the lost, reconciling people across social lines, calling people to repentance, healing the sick, forgiving sins, initiating people into the community of God's people. This is the new kingdom of God that has broken into the world to turn everything upside down. And this means that salvation in the Gospel of Luke is portrayed as present. Remember how Jesus tells Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. Luke uses the word today 11 times, uh, more than uh, every, everybody else combined, if I'm not mistaken. Salvation is present and growing with the coming of Jesus coming to the most unlikely. The rich again and again are sent away empty. The, the rich young ruler, the, the rulers of Israel, the poor filled with good things. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. His kingdom is going to be utterly subversive. And so we're introduced to Christ coming into the world in such a way as to overturn all expectation. Okay, well, the challenge to us then is also plain that we are to see the revolutionary character of God's kingdom and not value things according to the world's uh, regard. In practically every chapter, our Lord is challenging his disciples' self-righteous, often selfish attitudes and that of society leading us to understand his special love, commending his compassion for the poor, the needy, the lowly, the outcast, the poor sinner. Uh, As Paul's friend Luke puts it, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's the kingdom we're in. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus.
So this passage introduces to us a very humble, lowly Jesus in order that we would also take our place with him, the meek and lowly one. Jesus had come for people just like us. Second, Jesus is, produced, is, uh, is uh, presented to us as the sinner's savior, as the sinner's savior. You might wonder about this because, you know, our nativity sets and our cards cast such an aura around this group of shepherds that we maybe idealize them a little bit. But shepherds at this time in Israel are not viewed particularly positively. They were generally considered something like gypsies in our world, um, thieving outsiders, untrustworthy. Uh, A couple of examples, according to one Jewish writer, shepherds weren't honest enough to be admitted as witnesses in court. According to another, you shouldn't offer help to shepherds or Gentiles. Okay. Um, Their manner of life made strict religious observance more difficult, and in those days, wrongly, they were looked down upon by the more seriously religious. In other words, these men are not only the lowly in society, but the forerunner of the so-called sinners who would soon be filling Jesus' open-air congregations and filling, uh, hearing him gladly when the scribes and Pharisees only found reason to criticize. These shepherds were the very kind of people with whom Jesus would be associating and spending so much time during his ministry. Uh, the story does not say, now there were in that country kings and princes keeping watch over their treasuries at the palace, or there were scribes and Pharisees keeping watch over their scrolls by night. It says uh, that it was to such shepherds that is born to you this day a savior. And by the way, Luke is the only writer uh, in the four gospels that calls Jesus the savior. It's used a lot later, but... Um, and, uh, and, and a reference to save elsewhere, but Luke calls him the Savior time and time again. He's the only gospel writer also to use the words redemption and redeem. Not just Gentiles, but sinners of every stripe are the focus of Luke's gospel. He used the word sinners 16 times more than the other writers combined. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The entire gospel of Luke, writes one scholar, pictures Jesus as reaching out to the lost in forgiveness. And so we see that uh, Jesus is very appropriately given not only to the meek and lowly, but also to these somewhat disreputable people out in the field, the shepherds that nobody quite trusted. Uh, They are the people who have the full confidence of God. Many in the world today do not find Jesus because they are not troubled to seek. Maybe they're too busy. Maybe in their pride they dismiss what God has done in sending a Savior. Maybe they think if God came in the flesh, it would certainly be a much bigger deal. He'd be born in a palace with riches and splendor, but they wouldn't take such a lowly story so seriously. Well, for whatever reason, many people do not find the Savior because they will not stoop down this far to look. But this is the thing that our human, need, our human race needs, to humble ourselves before God. And to do that, a Savior is born and laid in a manger. Now, the most remarkable things were about to occur from this unlikely beginning. Mysterious, wonderful, supernatural, overwhelming things, complete disruption of human history. 
They would be astonished at his miracles. He would raise the dead, give sight to the blind, and uh, things that would uh, astonish the generation um, into which he was born. But these things are all child's play compared to what Jesus had really come to do. It cost him nothing to give a man back his sight. But what did it cost him to save us? We see at the cross the glory of God our Savior, the humiliation of the birth in a manger is just the beginning of a lifetime of suffering that culminates at the cross for us. Jesus had come to break down the fundamental barrier that separated us from God. He has come to save his people from their sins. And so, being later reviled as a friend of tax collectors and sinners, associating with disreputable people, Jesus says, no, it is for this very reason that I have come. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. He chose and changed the most notorious people to demonstrate the power of his love and grace. Paul, for example, makes much of this. God chose him for this very reason, not because he was the best of men, because he was the worst, a violent, insolent, God-hating man, that he might demonstrate his mercy. Well, we are told from the beginning, Jesus has come as a savior for sinners, There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. It's coming right down to you where you live. He has come ultimately not just to be humbled at the beginning, but to shed his blood for you at the end, O man, that you might not perish but have everlasting life. And that means that something other than your personal goodness is going to be the cause of your salvation. Jesus will save his people from their sins. Rejoice, you who feel that you are lost, writes one. Your Savior comes to seek and to save you. Be of good cheer, you who are in prison. He comes to set you free. You who are famished and ready to die, rejoice that he has come to be the bread of life to your souls. Rejoice, O sinners everywhere, for the restorer of the castaways, the Savior of the fallen, is born. Jesus is no partial Savior, beginning a work but not concluding it. But restoring and upholding, he also perfects and presents the saved ones without spot or wrinkle or any such thing before his father's throne. Rejoice aloud, all you people. Let the hills and valleys ring with joy for a savior who is mighty to save is born to you. Uh, There's free clinics around that uh, doctors will sometimes have a free clinic day when anybody who has particular need but has not the means may go and receive care. That's just the sort of thing our master has in mind. In fact, he receives none but those who come to him gratis. He, he asks for nothing. He receives, nothing, he receives those uh, who have nothing to give but their sins. He takes them as they are, but he does not leave them that way any longer. And there is nothing that any man can add to the cross of Christ, our Savior, God incarnate, who has come to lay down his life for his friends. So our salvation requires the greatest conceivable things in the world. And uh, this passage points us to this Savior right at the very beginning. Christ's compassion also challenges us. Do we have this same compassion? He looked upon a dying and lost world. 
and he was moved, and he was the friend of sinners. He said he had come for the lost sheep. He was the friend of tax collectors. He ate with them. He sought them out. He had come for a people who had nothing to be proud about spiritually, who were not satisfied that they were better than others. The proud, Jesus knew from afar, but he was the tender, merciful, forgiving, welcoming Savior of all who sinned and needed to be reconciled to God in him. He is presented to us as the sinner's Savior. Well, finally, I'll point out in this birth announcement as we conclude that it speaks of great joy that shall be to all people. A very broad statement, even uh, on verse 14 here, on earth, peace, adding goodwill toward men in uh, the generic name of our whole race. He has come for all people and all races, races and all nations to be the Savior of the world. And as a Gentile writer, Luke does have a keen interest in mentioning the Gentiles that came into Jesus' path. He wants to remind us also that Jesus has come as the Savior of all men, of all nations, of all peoples, and that the gospel is for, for everyone. He records at the end of this chapter how the aged Simeon prophesies that the child is God's salvation, prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light that brings revelation to the Gentiles, verse 32. And in practically every chapter, Luke especially reminds us that Christ is the Savior of the world, of the high, but especially of the low. And so it was from the first There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. To be sure, the Lord does not leave himself a witness among the high and the mighty and the wise and the powerful, some of the world's greatest rulers, the world's greatest minds, its greatest artists and scientists and leaders in every field have been followers of Jesus. So let no one think that the truth of Christ cannot satisfy a great mind or a great vision or a great heart. Perish the thought. But truly the vast majority of us have been Zacharias and Elizabeths, Josephs and Marys, Simeons and Annas, the the, the shepherds, the people we find introduced to us in Luke 1 and Luke 2, people that have most except for this, that God has become man to give himself for men and to be our salvation, to bring us poor sinners to God. This is the joy that we have in seeing the gospel according to Luke beginning in such a way. You see your calling, brethren, writes the apostle. Not many wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it's written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, what good news we have found again in Jesus, sympathy and tender love, Uh, uh, a Savior for the poor and lonely, a Savior for sinners, a Savior that reaches all the way down to us in the depth of our very need. And we thank you in him for revealing your tenderness, your sympathy, your heart indeed for the whole world. And so, our Father, we thank you for the fulfillment of 
all of these things which the prophet had spoken, this little child who has come to lead us, who did not quarrel or cry out, and no one heard his voice in the streets, but he has declared righteousness to the nations and sends forth justice unto victory. So we pray that you would exalt him who was born in a manger as the ruler of nations now and the prince of the kings of the earth, king of kings and lord of lords. May his people rejoice and be glad, and may his kingdom, which has no end, advance in our...